of your Bible and find the book of Psalms, and I'll read number 127. Hear God's word. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, just a few moments ago we sang this song, and I'll use it as my prayer for us. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's really good to be back with you. Uh, I love getting to know you better and seeing what God is doing here among you here at Vero Beach. And uh, so thank you for the invitation to come back and to preach this morning. And I trust that God's going to speak to us from His Word in Psalm 127. A few weeks ago I did a funeral. And um, after the funeral went to the graveside and did the graveside service as well. And as I usually do on this particular occasion, I just spent a few moments before the service started looking around at all of the grave markers around me. This was a large cemetery in part of Orlando. And I was really struck as I was looking at all the grave markers by the uh, observation that one of these days there's going to be a grave marker with my name on it. Just as, unless the Lord comes back before that, just as there will be a grave marker with your name on it too one day. And I thought as I looked at those grave markers, I thought to myself, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? Will my life have made a difference? You know, there's nothing like being in a cemetery to begin making you think of of questions of life and death. I thought, will my life make a difference? Will my work endure? You know, I I wasn't just thinking selfishly. It wasn't just a desire to be remembered. It was instead a genuine hope that I'm redeeming the time that God is giving me and using my opportunities to contribute something to the world. You know, psychologists tell us that every human being has a tremendous need to feel that he or she is making a contribution. And by the same token, one of our deepest fears is failing to do so. You know, we don't want to wake up one day and discover that we've wasted our lives. So this is one of the reasons Psalm 127 is so important. You might have noticed in this psalm as I was reading it, the phrase, in vain. It's in there three times. In my Bible, I've underlined it all three times. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. No one wants to live his or her life in vain, do we? And so how can you have a life that matters? How will you be sure that your work will endure, that you will leave a legacy? There could be no more important question for us to be asking this morning. Let's find out by studying Psalm 127. A couple of observations, first of all. Uh, The title, it says that it was written by Solomon. Now there's an important Bible name, right? Now, we don't know in every case if these titles of the Psalms are accurate. They were not inspired by the Holy Spirit as the content of the Psalms was. But I see no reason to believe that it was not written by King Solomon as it's claimed there. Solomon, the son of David, the one who penned so many of the Proverbs, he was a wise person. And this is a wisdom psalm. And so we're going to assume that Solomon was, in fact, the author of Psalm 127. And then it also says in the title that this psalm is a song of ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S. You see that? There are about 15 psalms of ascent in the Bible, and those are numbers 120 through 134. What What was a psalm of ascent, you ask? A psalm of ascent was a pilgrimage song. The Psalms of Ascent were sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they were walking to Palestine, to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, from all over the the then-known world to worship God and to fellowship at the temple in Jerusalem. And they would be singing these Psalms of Ascent on the way. And the reason it's a Psalm of Ascent is that Jerusalem was up on a hill, right? And so they were walking and, and... on pilgrimage upward toward the temple in Jerusalem. All of these psalms of ascent, we believe, were sung by those pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem. Let's bring it up to modern day times. You might imagine a huge throng of people making their way from all over the country to the Washington Mall, uh, let's say for some kind of civil rights demonstration. And what are they singing? We shall overcome, right? So that's the kind of thing that these psalms of ascent were. As I said a moment ago, it's a wisdom psalm. That means it's a teaching psalm. It gives us a biblical worldview about everyday things. Everyday things like like raising a family, like guarding a city, like building a house and making a living. I've entitled this sermon today, The Vanity of Life Without God. Because I think this psalm speaks to this need that I was talking about. This need of a meaningful life. And it speaks of the awful possibility that life can be tragically wasted. So let's dive in, okay? I've got three things I want to share with you this morning. And uh, the first is a problem. And then we're going to talk about why that problem is so serious. And then thirdly, the solution to that problem. So if you're with me, let's begin. Let's talk first about a problem that Psalm 127 addresses. The problem is that we human beings have an innate tendency to think that we can live life successfully and meaningfully without God in the center. Let me say that again. 
The problem that Psalm 127 speaks to is that we human beings have an innate tendency to believe that we can live life successfully and meaningfully without God in the center. Look at verses 1 and 2. I'll say them again. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Now here you have three examples of human arrogance. Building a house, and we could say building a church, or building a dynasty, or building an empire, or running a business without the Lord and His help. Or securing a city, or securing your life, or a home, or your future without the Lord. And then working hard, working hard at your vocation, or at your art, or at managing your money, or raising a family, or anything else without the Lord. Can you imagine doing any of those things on your own without the Lord's help? It's the height of human arrogance to think that any of those things can be done without God in the center of your life. Where did we ever get that idea that we don't need God? Well, we got it from the Garden of Eden. It started way back then with Adam and Eve. You remember eating the forbidden fruit? They thought they knew better than God. They thought, we don't need God. We can make decisions on our own. God doesn't have authority over us. Our way is better than God's way. And that was the original sin that started the whole problem of the world. And then that's Genesis 3 and things begin to go downhill from there, right, in the Bible. Skip over to Genesis 11. That's the Tower of Babel story. And that was a failed monument to this theory that you can do a building project or really do anything without God's blessing. And then the whole history of the nation of Israel as it unfolds through the Old Testament is a sad story, one story after another, of a people of God who thought that they could make it without God in the center of their nation. I remember uh, the day everything changed for me as a parent. Our fourth and final child, Michael, he's now 26, he was about four at the time, And I came home from work one afternoon, and Michael was all excited. And he met me in the driveway of our home. He said, Daddy, 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 come out to the swing set. I want to show you something. So he led me back to the backyard. He plopped down on one of the swings, and he started pumping. You know what I mean? Kicking his legs out there and throwing his back backwards. And pretty soon, Michael was swinging all by himself. And he said, Daddy, look what I can do. See, previous to that day, he didn't know how to pump. He had to have me come and get behind him and push him on the swings. But now he could do it. And he kept saying over and over, Look, Daddy, I could do it by myself. Things would never be the same for me. (laughs) That's our last kid. As every parent knows, and some of you know this very well, your child learns to do more and more things by him or herself until one day what you've got is an empty nest. And we reward that, don't we? 
We're proud of that when our kids learn to do things by themselves, when they learn how to color and throw a ball and drive a car and mow the grass and do math problems and hold a job down all by themselves. That's fine. It's a sign of maturity. But when human beings look up at God and say, God, I can do it by myself. Thank you very much. That's not a sign of maturity. That's a sign of pride. But of course, we human beings know that we really can't live without God. So what do we do? Well, in our sinful condition, we replace Him. We replace God. We fill our lives with idols like money and intellect and beauty and power and, and, and well, verses 1 and 2. I'll call those the three S's. Stuff, security, and success. Why do we do it? We do it because we're innately religious. We must have something bigger than we are at the center of our lives. We must have something that we think will validate us and fulfill us and satisfy us and fill up the aching hole that's in our hearts. See, folks, even the atheist worships something. But that's the essence of sin, isn't it? The belief that you don't need the true and living God at the center of everything. The God who made you. The God who gives you every breath your lungs take. The God who gives you every heartbeat that your heart pumps in your body. The idea that I don't need that God at the center of my life. Can you imagine? That's the essence of sin right there. Many of you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism the first uh, question of which says, what is man's chief end? That is, what is our main purpose? And the answer, some of you probably know it. Man's chief end is to what? there, There you go. To glorify and enjoy God forever. See, that's what we were made for. But to deny that, to settle for anything less than that, It's the height of human arrogance. But that's what we see said there in verses 1 and 2 of our psalm. And that's the problem. The problem is to think that we can live meaningfully and successfully without God at the center of our lives. Now, why is that problem so serious? Let's move on to that point of my sermon. Why is that problem so serious? It's so serious because Psalm 127 says that it won't work. It will not work. Without God at the center, life is what? Ultimately futile and frustrating. As I pointed out earlier in this psalm, three times Solomon says, it is vain. You build the house without the Lord in vain. You guard the city without the Lord in vain. You burn the midnight oil and get up early and worry yourself sick in vain. See, the life that's spent without God at the center is ultimately futile and frustrating. The psalm writer is saying something here so very honest, and yet it's so very radical, and we need to hear it. Apart from God, apart from God, listen, you really and truly can do nothing. Nothing that is ultimately worthwhile and enduring. That word vain, it means useless 
or empty or inconsequential or pointless or worthless, false or frustrating. You might remember the third commandment, right? Thou shalt not, what, take the name of the Lord in vain, right? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, usually when we think of that third commandment, we think that it's a commandment against using the name of God as a swear word. And surely that's included, and that's wrong to do. But it's more than that. To take the Lord's name in vain means using the name of God thoughtlessly, treating it lightly as though it were an empty name or a worthless name, a name that could just as well be given to a false god or an idol. So the psalmist is saying here, when he keeps using this phrase in vain, that if you're seeking meaning, if you're seeking purpose in life apart from or independent of God, if you're building your life on those three S's, stuff, security, or success, it's pointless. It's empty. It's false. Those things don't deliver. Those things are not God with a capital G. You're like the man Jesus talks about in Matthew 7 if you try to build your life on those things. Remember that story? This man built his house on sand and Jesus said, that man is a fool because when the rain fell and the floods came up and the winds blew, what happened to that house? It fell, right? It fell because it couldn't weather the storm. It was built on a false or empty or fruitless foundation. Every human endeavor, no matter how noble, is doomed to fail if God's not in it. Anybody here ever visit Edinburgh, Scotland? Yeah, some of you have. Awesome. Edinburgh is the capital city of Scotland. And uh, did you know that they have a city seal? And I don't know much about Latin, but I'll try my best to pronounce these words. The city seal of Edinburgh reads like this, Nisi Dominus Frustra. Do you know what that means? Without the Lord, frustration. Wow. Wouldn't it be neat if American cities had that on their city seal? Nisi Dominus Frustra. Without the Lord frustration. Does that remind you of a book of the Bible, by the way? The book of Ecclesiastes, also written by whom? Solomon. The book of Ecclesiastes, you open it up and it starts this way, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And that could be read as frustration, frustration, everything is frustration. He goes on to say, what does man gain by all of his Toil under the sun. Same word toil as what you find right there in verse 2 of our psalm. Without the Lord, frustration. Now, wait a second. Somebody might be saying, Mike, you're going a bit overboard, aren't you? You said that every human endeavor without God at the center is ultimately doomed to fail What about all those good things that people have done? People who are not even Christians. Uh, There are a lot of unbelievers who have done amazing things that have seemingly endured. Well, that's true. You know, because of common grace, 
God gives gifts to people who are not even His people that end up blessing countless numbers of people. I think of some of the achievements of people throughout time who are not believers. All of the buildings that have been made, all of the books that have been written, the skyscrapers that have been built, right? The medical breakthroughs that have been been, uh, developed, the technologies that have been invented that have blessed millions of people. Were these things done in vain because they were done by unbelievers? Were they worthless? No, not in the temporal sense. They were not worthless. They were genuine blessings to the world. People are made, you know, in the image of God. And it's no surprise that their creations reflect God and His grace and bless countless numbers of people. But listen, however helpful to humanity those things were, they do not fill up the God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. You know what the, 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 the dying words of the existentialist John Paul Sartre was, were? His dying words on his deathbed were, I failed. The atheist David Hume said on his deathbed, I'm in flames. You know what the last words of Winston Churchill were? I'm so bored with it all. What a fool I've been. See, these were people who contributed things to the world. But in the last analysis, at the end of the day, they knew there was something huge missing in their hearts. Only God can fill that God-shaped hole. And so every human endeavor without God's glory, without God's being at the center, is ultimately worthless. Ultimately worthless. Again, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is the key to understanding these things. The writer of Ecclesiastes tried everything to find happiness, didn't he? He tried wisdom and pleasure and alcohol and houses and vineyards and servants and money and sex and entertainment. And at the end of the day, what did he find out? All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Hmm. Psalm 127 is not saying to stop building houses, (laughs) but instead build them for the glory of God, relying on God for help as your architect. Let Him be the boss in your life, in other words. The psalm is not saying to stop watching over the city. It's saying to do it, asking God for strength and enabling grace. Ask God to be your partner as you do that. Don't stop making a living, the psalmist is saying, but don't worry so much about your life. Worry, or as he uses the phrase, anxious toil, is a sign that you're not really trusting God to provide and to take care of you. In other words, as Jesus said in John 15, abide in me. You know those words, those, those words in John 15? Jesus said, Abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus is saying the same exact thing that Solomon is saying in Psalm 127. Apart from God, you can do nothing. So that brings us to the third thing that we see in Psalm 127. 
We've seen the problem of trying to live independent of God. We've seen how serious it is because it doesn't work. What's the solution to the problem? The solution is right there in these verses where God says that He gives grace to those who abide in Him. God gives grace to those who abide in Him. That is to say, when you recognize that you're just a branch, when you understand that without the vine of Jesus, you are hopeless, that without God in the center, life is futile and pointless, when you really do business with that idea and get it in your bloodstream and believe that, God comes and He meets you in that place and He gives you the help you need to keep going. In the first part of the psalm, I showed you some examples of human arrogance, right? Trying to, trying to build a house without the Lord, trying to guard the city without the Lord, trying to work and make a living without the Lord. Human arrogance. Well, now I want to show you two examples of God's grace in this psalm. The first one's in verse 2. Look again at verse 2. It is in vain, he says, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now look at this. This is amazing. For he, that is God, gives to his beloved sleep. The first example of God's grace in this psalm is the gift of sleep. When's the last time you heard a sermon about how good it is to sleep? (laughs) Well, here it is. Here it is. The one who lives a God-centered life can and should sleep in peace. Why? Because he or she knows that it's not all up to him or her. He is living in conscious, dependent partnership upon the Lord. See, let me tell you something about sleep you might not have heard recently. Sleep is actually an act of faith. Going to sleep at night is actually an act of faith. Because when you go to sleep at a decent time each night, you're saying, here's what you're saying, I've done all I can do. I can do no more. And it's enough. I know that there's more work to be done. I I could go see so-and-so. I could write more emails. I could clean the house more. I could, you name it. I could do this. I could do that. But God has given me the gift of sleep, and I'll trust Him for what I could not do. Now, that might be a new way for you to view sleep, but that's the way the Bible presents it. Sleep is an act of faith. Faith in a God who does what we could not do. It's it's being willing to say, I've done enough. I'm now going to trust God for the rest. Honoring the Sabbath day, same thing. Honoring the Sabbath day is an act of faith. Because what is the Sabbath day? The Sabbath day is a gift given to us by God for the purpose of worship and rest and acts of mercy. It's a gift of grace from the Lord. God says, I want you to take a break today. I don't want you to do any more work. I don't want you to do any more worrying. Let the house go. Do something different today. Enjoy your friends, enjoy your family, enjoy nature. Let your mind and body rest. That's the Sabbath day. But how many of us really do that? How many of us really use the Sabbath day as a gift of God to do nothing? (laughs) 
You know, because sometimes many Sundays are packed with as much activity and housework and yard work and going here and going there and doing this and doing that, just like the rest of the week. And when Monday arrives, is it anybody surprised that you're exhausted? You're not ready to begin a new week of work? See, that's not living by faith. That's not a God-centered life. You're trying to live independently of God and His Word. And the result is, verse 2, anxious toil. So you see, in God's economy, rest is actually productive and overwork is destructive. Rest is productive and overwork is destructive. The gospel, you see, turns everything upside down. The gospel says the way to be strong is to be weak. The way to be first is to be what? Last, exactly. The way to receive is to what? Give. And the way to get things done is to rest. It's beautiful. Now look, some of you are thinking, oh wow, this is, this is great. I'm just not going to do anything now. I'm really going to live by faith. No, 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 no. That's not right. That's, God, is not, God is not saying that it's okay to be passive, lazy, inactive, have no ambition. You know, that's not what God is teaching us here. It's good to be busy. It's good to be ambitious. The Bible commands us to build and watch and work and raise kids. But look, we must always remember that without the enabling, sustaining grace of God and the presence of God, our labors are in vain. We do our work, you ever heard this phrase, quorum Deo? in the face of God. We do our work for His glory, under His authority, before His face. Always do your work that way and take advantage of sleep and the Sabbath day of rest and then work as hard as you can the rest of the time. Now, there is another way to look at verse 2. that I, I, Maybe you've heard this before and I, I love it. Many scholars have pointed out that the last phrase of verse 2 should be read like this. Now, this is, this is different from the way it's translated in most Bibles. It, it should be read this way. He gives to His beloved as they sleep. Or another way of saying it is, God provides for His beloved while they sleep. Now, that's a valid way of translating uh, verse 2. In other words, while you're sleeping, God is taking care of things. While you are sleeping, God is working for you. He is working things out without your involvement. Isn't that encouraging? God is active while you are inactive, in other words. So this means that you don't have to kill yourself working for a God who demands more and more and more and more because the work is done. Jesus has paid it all. See, that's the gospel right there. You don't have to work Because God has worked for you by sending His Son Jesus to pay your debt. And when you do work, your work is not to earn the love of God because you've got that already. You work because of the love of God. You see how that completely changes your view of work. You don't work to earn God's love. You work because you're already loved. Another way of saying it is you don't work into rest, you work out of rest. 
See, this is one more way that Christianity shows that it's totally different from the other religions of the world. The other religions of the world say, here's what you should do. Christianity says, look what God has done. Religion is about, you do it. Christianity is about, God has done it for you. Receive it as a gift of faith. So the first example of God's grace that I'm showing you here is simply the gift of sleep or rest. The second one is in verses 3 through 5. Let's look at that. We've not read this uh, since I opened uh, opened it up at the beginning. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now there's the second example of God's grace in this psalm. The first was sleep. The second one is children. Children. In other words, God is saying that the person who has a quiver full of kids is a blessed person. However big your quiver might be. Now, let's understand that some people are not called to be parents. Not everyone is blessed with children. But let me give you a little different perspective. Those of you who do not have children of your own, you have children. They're right here in this room. You have spiritual children. Every single person who calls himself or herself a Christian is a spiritual mom and dad. And so in the church, everybody is a parent. So please take that seriously. Uh, But speaking of children, there's a story about an English bishop by the name of Joseph Hall. He lived back in the 15 and 1600s. He had eight children, six sons and two daughters. Not, Not many of us have eight kids, right? But he had eight children, and someone came to visit him one time, and he met all of his children. They were all lined up right there in the, in the entryway of his house. And the visitor said, these are they that make rich men poor. And Joseph Hall said, nay, my Lord, nay, these are they that make a poor man rich. Those of you with children, you are a poor person who's been made rich by your children. Children are a gift of God's grace. They are unearned and undeserved. And by the way, grandchildren are included in that. I have nine grandchildren, unbelievably. Many of you have more. And some of you have great-grandchildren. They are all gifts of God's grace. But look, what's the connection though? Like, how does this fit into the flow of Psalm 127? Well, I think it's this way. Raising children is yet another example of things that cannot be done apart from God's power and blessing. You can't build a house, secure a city, or make a living without God. That's verses 1 and 2. And you can't raise a kid without God either. That's verse 3 through 5. Children are a blessing from God, but you need God's blessing if you would rear those children successfully. So let's wrap up. What's the point of Psalm 127? I hope you've gotten it now. The point of Psalm 127 is this. Your God is a God of grace. He wants to help you. He works while you sleep. He gives you gifts all the time. And the main one is His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He gave His one and only Son because He loved you so much so that if you would transfer your trust away from yourself to Him, you'll have that which is called in verse 5, the blessed life. But you must abide in Him. You must abide in Jesus, like I said earlier. That's the condition that you've got to meet if your life would be fruitful. If one day you can look back on your life and say, this was a life well lived, it will be because you have been abiding like a branch in the vine of Jesus. Now look, everybody in this room is different from everybody else in this room. But we've got one thing in common at least, and that is that we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus desperately. We all need to stay connected to Jesus. So I want to leave you with something practical, a takeaway. How do you do that exactly? It's very easy for a preacher to come up here and say, you need to be abiding in Christ. But what does that look like when the rubber hits the road? Well, I had a mentor one time who, who he said, Mike, hold up your hand. Just one hand. Look at the five fingers of your hand. And I'll ask you to do the same thing. Hold up one of your hands. you got five fingers. Here's what my mentor told me as a way to remember how to abide in Christ. Read, pray, trust, and obey. That's easy to remember, isn't it? Read, pray, trust, and obey. So the ring finger gets the word and, right? Read, pray, trust, and obey is a way to remember, oh, that's how I can stay connected to the vine. Read my Bible, pray, trust God's promises, and obey what He tells me to do in the Bible. As I look out at you this morning, I see some who I suspect are retired. In fact, maybe that's why you live here in Florida. You retired to the Atlantic coast of Florida. You might have thought at one time in your life that retirement would be so easy and you have found out that it's the hardest thing in the world to be retired. Some of you have lost your very best friend. Some of you have found it to be kind of a lonely calling. Some of you don't feel as well as you used to feel. Did you think that you could live retired without God in the center? See, God is saying here in Psalm 127, you can't do that. I want to help you. Trust in me. Read, pray, trust, and obey. Some of you are married. I'm looking out at you, and I'm willing to bet some of you found it hard, harder than you thought it would be, to really love each other, to forgive each other, and to have that flame continue to grow stronger and stronger. Well, did you think, did you ever think, That you could have a wonderful marriage without God in the center of that marriage? God is saying in Psalm 127, He wants to help you. He's pursuing you. So will you get on your knees together and ask God, Father, we've tried to build our marriage on sand and we're sinking. We've been laboring in vain because we've not been depending on you. Come be the focus of our marriage again. Read, pray, trust obey. Some of you this morning are parents. Did you think you could raise a family without the Lord at the center of your family? God says here, I want to help you. I'm pursuing you through Psalm 127. Will you get reconnected to the vine this morning? Will you start reading the Bible with your children? Will you pray with them? 
Will you make sure that they're active in church, the covenant community in which you live? Listen, these are means of grace for your children. Will you ask God to forgive you and to help you be more diligent in that area? And some of you this morning are in a dark place, maybe a lonely place, spiritually. You feel very far away from God, perhaps. Maybe you've built your life on sand and you've been finding that out. It's not working for you. The God revealed in Psalm 127 is a God who is reaching out to you today. He's saying, while you know you cannot do it on your own, I can come alongside you and help you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. I titled my sermon, The Vanity of Life Without God, but I could have just as well titled it, The Blessing of Life with God. The choice is yours this morning. Faith or futility? Trust in Jesus or anxious toil? Which will it be? The first step is repentance. Stop living apart from God. Stop trying to do it by yourself. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would ask you, plead with you, turn from your sins and put your trust wholly in Jesus. And if you are a believer in Christ, begin again to abide in Jesus. Read, pray, trust, and obey like a branch abiding in the vine. Let's pray together. Let's think about some questions. Is the Lord your architect or is He just your errand boy? Are you following God's plans or are you asking God to follow yours? Is the Lord your boss or are you His? Are you living quorum Deo or are you living frustration without the Lord? Father, I I just thank You for confronting us with some pretty big questions this morning. Are you at the center of our lives or are we trying to focus our life on the three S's of uh, stuff or security or success? Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would so work in us a fresh realization of our impotence and of our need of your grace. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us for trying to do it by ourselves. And we ask you to draw us closer to you so that we might live in conscious daily partnership with you, that we might abide in Christ like a branch abiding in the vine. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us